Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the praise and blessings of Allah be upon you all and welcome um, to another live drive time show um, here from our London studios at Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to myself, Salman and Dr. Tariq Bajwa and we will be with you, um, God willing, till 6 p.m. today. The topics that we are going to be discussing are two very important topics once again. Um, the first topic which uh, will take us past the news break at 5pm is loneliness, a serious health concern. And then in the second hour we will be discussing um, the life and uh, um, the, the, the uh, biography of the first caliph of the Ahmadiyya community, uh, Hazrat Hakim Maulana Nuruddin Sahib. So to get started, um, as I said, we will be speaking about loneliness, which is obviously a very, very serious health concern in today's day and age in the society, because we are seeing more and more people that end up alone within their homes um, towards the later ages in life, some of us are actually lonely, although we are surrounded by people. So loneliness doesn't have to be in terms of the people around us, but sometimes we are alone with our own thoughts and our own struggles. So if you uh, wish to participate in, in our discussion today, please make sure to give us a call on 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us on our socials, uh, which is at Voice of Islam UK. Now, Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female. And we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. <clears throat> if we uh, look at humanity in general, at as human beings, we realize that humans usually thrive in community. We have an inherent need for cultivating relationships that provide emotional support, intellectual stimulation and a sense of belonging, really. Um, in the intricate uh, tapestry of human existence, our desire for connection and companionship is, is really deeply ingrained. Um, so this is obviously a very, very vast topic and we will try to, to um, discuss this um, in, in detail as much as we can. Um, but before we go into further discussion from our side, we have with us our first guest for today's show, which is <clears throat> Robin Hewings, uh, campaign director of the campaign to end loneliness. Robin, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, now, you you are the campaign's director at uh, the campaign to end loneliness. Tell us a bit about your campaign and what, what is the idea behind it? Um, so the idea behind it is that uh, around 12 years ago, there were a lot of people 
who were interested in loneliness and working on loneliness. Um, but they had no place to kind of come together. And so they founded the Campaign to End Loneliness as a place where we can uh, develop our understanding about loneliness and what works to tackle it, to collaborate uh, across all types of different types of organisations, so researchers, charities, uh, people in the private sector, uh, and also to make the case for action that this is one of the most important issues facing our society, that loneliness has really deep effects uh, on our well-being, on our mental and physical health, and on our society more generally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. So over the years, the, the, the issue of, of loneliness seems to have worsened. Um, what what are some of the potential societal implications of um, widespread loneliness? So I think that when more of us are lonely, um, it has a number of impacts. I think the, the first one is that um, at the individual level, when we're lonely, um, if you just think about our own lives, we'll think that a t- period of time when we were lonely will always be a really, really difficult period in our lives. And what we as a campaign most worry about is not kind of so much fleeting feelings of loneliness, but when loneliness becomes really entrenched. So we use the phrase chronic loneliness to describe when loneliness is just what your life feels like, because uh, that affects how we think about our social relationships, how we work with others, uh, it's profoundly damaging and it can have really surprisingly serious impacts on our mental and physical health. So if we're lonely and socially isolated, this is a risk factor comparable to smoking. It's really, really serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the um, initiatives employed by the campaign to tackle this issue? So... The point of us is that we're about a place where people who work across all kinds of different ways of dealing with loneliness can come together. And um, and so the things that so and the point of us is also that we don't we don't do those things because we don't want to detract from their work. Um, so what we do is what so the, some of the best things that you can do about loneliness is um, partially. Um, uh, to um, help people to understand why they're lonely and help them to think through strategies for what they can do to stop being lonely. So the NHS is rolling out something called social prescribing, um, which is a, a new set of workers whose job is to do just that. Then other things, uh, the classic things I think we probably think about when if you said someone's lonely, what would you do about it? You'd probably say that they should maybe join a group or volunteer and really do work, and they're really valuable. Um, but then the other things are about our kind of broader environment. So uh, particularly people in the rural areas can be lonely, essentially because there's no way for them to get about and meet other people. Um, whereas on the other hand, in cities 
places can feel kind of scary and intimidating and that can make people feel lonely whereas if there's places for people to to come together and a nice park a nice cafe um places that they can walk to all of that makes us feel much less lonely so there's a, a whole set of things that we can do to tackle loneliness um and there's many good things happening but there are also uh definitely a lot more that we can do as well right so so, so you mentioned um you help people understand um why they're feeling lonely um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples of uh, why people usually feel lonely? So, there are some things in our lives which don't change, which can make us more likely to feel lonely. So, for example, being disabled, being discriminated against, can really undermine our trust in other people and can really make us feel much more likely to be lonely. Um, But loneliness is often due to kind of change in our lives. So... Uh, for example, um, if we've just moved or if we've moved jobs mm-hmm. or if um, a relationship has broken down. Um, but the biggest single thing is if we've been bereaved. Um, so if your partner, your husband or your wife dies, mm-hmm. that is really deeply, deeply damaging. Um, because obviously loneliness is the kind of... Um, is what we feel when we don't have the social relationships we have. And if your partner's died, then clearly that's going to be a really damaging situation for you. Of course, of course. So when we as as a society or as fellow beings realise that um, there is someone who is um, struggling with, with, with uh, loneliness, for example, um, how, how should we approach them or what is it that we can do to help uh, them get better? So I think that's a really, really good question because I think that um, it is really important. I think my almost, if I had one message that I'd want to give to your listeners, really, it's that when we feel lonely, the world feels like a really scary place, and it's really hard for us to um, to it's like a catch twenty two because the world feels more scary mm-hmm. the idea of reaching out to do something new to join a new group or to get in touch with an old friend feels really intimidating and so if we can if we do notice that someone in our lives might well be lonely or they're going through a change that might that might make them lonely it's a really good thing to do to be the one to reach out to them rather than waiting for them because they'll be finding it much more difficult than you will so um, the kind of things you can do are, um, and it's really to do with our own judgment about our relationship with them. So you might feel that you can just say really straightforwardly, I think you might be lonely. Is that right? What can we do about that? But you might feel that what from what you know about them, that might feel a bit too explicit. And you might want to just suggest that you that they come over or that you come over or you do something that you'll both enjoy or that they come to a group that you like. Um, uh, And what that group is could be anything. It might be, you know, a religious group. It might be a sports group or anything. But, yes, you might want to do it directly. You might want to do it indirectly. But I think that's for our own judgment about our relationship with someone. But the key message, I think, is that it's a really, really worthwhile thing to do because when we're lonely, it really affects us very deeply. And I think I can think of my own life of a couple of times when someone's 
reached out to me at a difficult time, I can still absolutely remember that moment and how grateful I was to them. All right, uh, Robin, that's great. Um, you know, the loneliness affects different age groups and communities in different ways. Mm-hmm. And how can the varying impacts of loneliness be effectively addressed in such diversity? Well, I think that we, yeah, we live in a society that is diverse, but can often really kind of value that diversity. And while also trying to make sure that everyone can feel included. And I think that um, in that context, I think that there's a few things that we can do. One of them is, um, is about valuing that diversity and giving people um, the space and opportunity to uh, to come together, but also to be respected for who they are. Um, and as I say, it's, it's um, being discriminated against is a really, um, is a very, very lonely place to be. Um, but also I think that services, particularly kind of, uh, whether it's charities or, uh, or the government, can uh, make sure that they adapt what they do to different people and also um, respect that the solution to different people's loneliness will be as varied as we are as individuals. It might be because we're different religions or races or even personality types. So some people might feel lonely because they're not seeing people seven days a week. And some people might feel lonely um, just because they're not seeing someone every fortnight. And we have different uh, needs for social contact. And I think that um, it's really important that we um, uh, understand and can be flexible to all of those different needs. Yeah, this uh, you know this particular uh, topic, loneliness. It has come out more prominently after we have had the experience uh, of COVID, mm-hmm. and uh, so th- this uh, came out. So, how has the response been towards your campaign to end loneliness? And are the individuals and communities receptive towards working on that matter? Yes. So what we think happened um, as a result of the pandemic is, to be honest, more people have become lonely, particularly in that chronic way that we most worry about. So we think that there are about half a million more people chronically lonely now than before the pandemic. So the impact on loneliness of the pandemic has been really serious. I think on the other hand, I think more people understand loneliness and how much we get out of our social connections as a result of the pandemic, because more of us um, have kind of had some experience of loneliness, even if obviously most people have, have, as it were, been able to bounce back. Um, So yes, we have best standing, but we also have greater need as well. That's great. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, this afternoon, Robin. Uh, And it was a pleasure talking to you. I hope that uh, our listeners have benefited out of that as well. Thank you and have a nice evening. Thank you. And I hope you have a lovely evening as well. Thank you. So that was uh, Robin Hewing talking about uh, loneliness, which is a very, very important topic, uh, particularly after we have had the experience of COVID. Many people they found themselves to be very lonely, not being able to talk to one-to-one, face-to-face. And, uh, of course, you know, people after a long period 
of being separated. It was a pleasure when we met each other face to face and tried to remember the names, some of the those who were very close to us. Yes, and it was yes. a struggle sometimes, just and 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 embarrassing as well. Sometimes, yeah, times <laughs> that you know we we couldn't uh, remember the names, and and I think it has changed the whole atmosphere and we have realized the importance how important it is and we we usually take it for granted that we meet each other mm-hmm. we we mm-hmm. hug each other we talk to each other and we sit together and without any restrictions and this uh, shows us that there are many things which we don't realize that they are a blessing from Allah which has been given to us and we uh, we should not take them for granted and always be thankful to God Almighty who has stated in the Holy Quran that O mankind we have created you from a male and a female and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another verily the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you surely Allah is all-knowing all-aware so once we know that Allah is all-knowing yeah. and He is all-aware, then we realize that what He has said is that the honor comes with the righteousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So And the righteousness, <coughs> of course, <coughs> is in helping each other, be there for each other. Someone is in need, you go out, you sacrifice some of the things which you at the time might find difficult to do, but for the sake of humanity, you you come out, you you try to connect with people, and this is what humanity is. And the humans, they thrive in community. Yes, we, yes. And okay. we have an inherent need for cultivating relationships and that provide emotional support, intellectual stimulation, and a sense of belonging. In the intricate tapestry of human ex- existence, our desire for connection and companionship is deeply ingrained. And that is one reason why we can't live without it. Absolutely. Um, this, this verse of the Quran, uh, Dr. Bajwa, mentions that we've made you into tribes and sub-tribes, right? Uh, I know that you travel a lot, mashallah. Yeah. Uh, would you say traveling is also something that helps you maybe combat loneliness? I, I, I think that when you travel and when you when you see diverse people mm. and 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 every society you see different parts and the different cultures and how they behave and how they act and one thing you you know in common that no matter what language they are speaking the basic relationship mm. as a human being remains the same yes, yes and you you want to talk to people you want to get connected you want to be um, identified and and appreciated your presence. Sure. So uh, I think it it widens your uh, uh, vision mm-hmm. of looking at humanity as a whole. Sure. And you are not limited, and your <clears throat> thoughts and your your worries basically are not limited to no, to yourself or um, or maximum to your household. Yes. But it widens up, and you see. Um, the whole humanity on earth as as your family. And then th- there is this other aspect, of, <laughs> and, I, and I'll come back to your travels in a bit as well, yeah. is when you feel lonely but b- you believe in the existence of Allah the Almighty, which tells you that you're actually not lonely at all, Absolutely. and at every given time, um, there is someone who is going to listen to you and who's going to answer your prayers, 
and that brings me back to your travels because you've been to Umrah not just once but many times I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. And 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 you and you've been to the house of God. So does I mean it, how how much does that again help one to understand that I'm not lonely at all? Yeah, I think um you know because this is a place where you go where the people from all over the world they are there and they are in millions. Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, you see that God Almighty he is the one who has created us and he has given us a purpose and he has given us how to achieve that purpose as yes, well. Yes. And one of the things he has decided that you will benefit out of it is to all of you getting together. Mm-hmm. So if God Almighty, our creator, has in, in, a, in a way told us that if you get together, it will be beneficial for you, sure. then of course this... There is an understanding in it that if you if you are if you get connected to each other, you are likely to benefit out of each other Absolutely. as well. Because when you communicate, you you look at uh, the problems which you can share, and you, you can also share the the solutions. Mm-hmm. So whatever wherever you are, it is it you are you are going to benefit out of it. Absolutely, and th- I mean that is so amazing when we believe in a living existence, God that we know that he's always going to speak with us and we can always share our problems with him. And you can never be alone as well because he's always there. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's (coughs) and uh, not only that he's there, but he can help you. Exactly. Exactly. (coughs) So So he's he's, he's the almighty. So he has all powers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we will go further um, into this discussion. But now we have online, I understand we have two of our guests uh, on the line with us at the same time. It's um, Kaylee uh, Wainwright, who is the Director of Youth Sector Innovation at youth, uh, at UK Youth. And we have also with us Molly Taylor, who is the member of Belong Collective, which is a cross-sector network, again, at UK Youth, specifically aiming to tackle youth loneliness. Um, Kaylee and Molly, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Um, yes, yeah, thank, you. Th- th- thank you so much for, for being with us and taking out your time. Um, if I can start with, 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 with Kaylee, uh, my, my, my question would be for you first. Um, how would you say loneliness Im- impacts the mental well-being and overall health of a young person? Um, hi, thanks so much for having us. Um, yeah, we've um, at UK Youth, we've been doing a lot of work on looking at the impact of um, loneliness on young people um, and also how youth and community groups locally can support young people with this. Um, we know that loneliness um, really impacts um, the mental well-being and overall health of young people just as it does for any age group. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that young people are more likely to experience loneliness than ev- any other age group, which often is a, um, sometimes a shock for people to hear. I think often people think young people are really well connected in terms of digital, obviously school, college, university, etc. Um, and obviously it can have a really serious impact on their life, from physical and mental health. Um, as long as educational attainment, you know, employability and an overall life satisfaction. Um, we know that long-term impacts of loneliness on young people may depend on how long they experience it. So um, often if it's unrecognised, um, and the longer it's unrecognised, um, and the less support they have and opportunities to have to like, re-engage and feel less lonely, obviously the, the impact is going to be greater. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, what what social or um, cultural factors really uh, cause loneliness among youth, and how can society um, help addressing these issues? Yeah, um, well, we started doing some really specific research on this back in 2018, and we knew at that point that um, there was many factors um, exacerbating loneliness for young people. That was obviously pre-COVID, pre-cost of living crisis. Um, We know that most young people will experience loneliness at some point in their lives, um, and sometimes that can be an emotional response to something that's happening, but it's about the intensity and duration of the experience um, that will vary, and it's, again, like like um, I've just mentioned, we're interested in the intensity and the length and the long-term impact of, of that. Really, we want to be getting young people out of that phase or that feeling of loneliness as soon as possible. We know that certain groups are more likely to be affected by loneliness, and this includes um, young people um, from disadvantaged backgrounds, so those receiving um, potentially free school meals or from low-income uh, families, um, young refugees and asylum seekers or who, who have newly arrived to the country, you know, have experienced like great trauma um, and are obviously um, maybe away from their family and friends in their home country. Um, young people with caring responsibilities, um, with physical disabilities and those who are um, looked after. Um, and then finally, the other two groups that we know um, are more likely to face loneliness is um, young people who are neurodivergent and also young people who aren't in employment. And obviously, our research um, back then was in 2018. We know the impact of COVID has is uh, really important to recognise. We know this has exacerbated lots of things for young people and we know that they were hardest hit as a result of the pandemic with more young people reporting poor mental health <coughs> and suffering from loneliness. So it's really important that we work across different sectors in society um, to support young people and work with them to develop solutions to tackle the problem. That's obviously some of the work that Molly's involved in um, and our research shows that youth workers and local youth organisations and community groups play a huge and essential role in supporting young people to overcome these challenges, re-engage them in their community um, and really be that support net for young people so that that, um, that they know that they're not alone um, and do have people surrounding them that, that are there to support them. Um, right, Koli, we'll come back to you. Uh, my question now to Molly is that how mm. prevalent is loneliness among youth today and how neglected do you think that this issue is? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. It's really important. Um, so according to research a year ago, so just after the pandemic, over 1.9 million young people were facing chronic loneliness in the UK alone. Mm-hmm. Um, however, since the census data has been released this year, it's an estimate that now it's over 2 million. So it's over. it's only worsening as time goes on. And so now it's at a really critical point that we need to start tackling it together as um, Hayley mentioned, cross-collaboratively and across sectors. Um, so in my personal experience, as an activist, every young person I come across, whether I speak to friends or at events, they all raise their hands when I ask that question of, have they ever experienced loneliness? And even then, when they realize that everyone's got their hand up, they didn't realize that everyone else felt the same way. So it's that critical point of actually understanding what loneliness is and recognizing it within ourselves. And I think 
Um, whilst the research has been developing over the past five years, so with UK Youth in 2018 and with the CARP Foundation, which are pioneering um, loneliness research, um, there is still so much gap missing and it is becoming a neglected issue. Um, for example, resources and support for young people needs to improve. Um, I mean, research is great, but action is even better. And I know that when I felt alone, um, I rang up to 14 mental health helplines in one night and there was either too long of a wait or when I did get through to the call, um, the person, the practitioner, didn't understand how to help me with loneliness and often misdiagnosed me. Mm-hmm. So there is a really crucial point now where we're at. We've got the research, we've got the evidence-based research, um, which is great and it's supporting and it's showing us that young people are lonely. So now it's about actually tackling it together um, because we're better together. Um, okay, Maria, do you believe social media exacerbates feelings of isolation or do you see it as a valuable tool for making them feel less alone? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting one. And I suppose because I'm a young person, I use social media every day. So I have kind of a different perspective. But interestingly, when I'm in a room full of practitioners and older people, they often see social media as a detriment to young people's mental health and loneliness. And whilst this is true to an extent, um, for my own personal journey and for, I'm sure, many other young people, social media can be used as a tool. I mean, now I've been able to use a platform and campaign about youth learning this through social media, for example, through TikTok and blogs, and have reached over 500,000 young people and engaged with them because of the use of social media. And often young people will contact me through social media asking um, how I deal with loneliness, um, kind of recognizing they're too feeling lonely and it's a really kind of um, low cost high impact way of reaching out those young people and letting them know that they're, they're not alone in their journey um, so I think yes whilst social media can sometimes lead to isolation it's also um, a really positive tool for young people to be able to use that's great and uh, one last question to you is how can we promote a sense of belonging among young individuals, considering the diversity of their interests and struggles? Right, I think I have like three key points here. So if you're listening, please note these down. Um, The top one for me is really asking a young person what makes them them, you know, their identity. Um, It took 21 years for someone to ask me what makes Molly Molly. And before then, I was feeling incredibly lonely, unheard and unseen. Mm. And it wasn't until um, a youth worker actually asked me, why are you feeling lonely, that then I was able to actually um, tackle loneliness within myself. And what people saw is that I was feeling lonely, but they not uh, once asked me the root cause of it. So I think that if you're listening to this, then definitely reach out to young people and ask them who they are. Um, And remember that, Someone may experience loneliness even in, if they're in a room full of people, even if they have loads of friends. Um, it's kind of spring, it's sprung upon young people at different factors for different reasons. So you can never predict when loneliness is going to happen. And again, the second point is us young people have an identity. We want to own that identity. That's in our right. Um, but until we are asked what makes us us and um it's very hard to feel a sense of empowerment and again that we belong in the space so i suppose closing up on that um kind of question if you are listening to this whether you're a youth worker a practitioner or just someone that knows someone that is lonely or even yourself 
um, I just urge you to sit with a down with a young person, even take five minutes out of your day and just ask them what makes them them, who they want to be. And um, that really changed my life when a youth worker did that for me. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, it's uh, nice to listen to you, your personal experience as well. And uh, a lot, uh, I think it was very helpful. And uh, mm-hmm. coming uh, back to Kelly now, um, can you tell us about the ways UK youth is working towards reducing loneliness and encouraging connectivity amongst youth? Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so at UK Youth, we're really um, passionate and our aim is to ensure that all young people um, are empowered and, and have the skills and confidence um, to thrive. And we do that through ensuring that youth work is recognised um, and that um, more investment um, goes into youth work so that young people can access the vital support that Molly's just talked about. Um, but specifically on youth loneliness, um, we're supported by uh, government and the Co-op Foundation um, uh, to lead the national network of organisations um, through the Belong Collective, which Molly's a part of. Um, and our aim is to work together with them to improve how the youth sector can tackle youth loneliness. Um, so we're funded specifically to do that and we're looking to really look at what can we learn together, how can we collaborate, how can we share best practice between different um, professionals um, and then we're working with um, an organisation called Youth Focus Northeast who are um, who are being designing some training to better support youth workers who can spot the signs of loneliness in young people. Uh, we've identified 19 priority areas with the highest levels of youth loneliness in the UK um, and we're currently working in eight areas to deliver this training and also to provide better connections and make sure young people are really leading the way in this work. And we're really well connected to the campaign to end loneliness, um, which is funded by the government um, and works with um, people like the Joe Cox Foundation. So it's really important that we're all connected on this issue. Um, and we're finally, we're a leading advocate for the importance in investing in youth work in general, because we know that where there are locally based uh, community services where young people can access quality youth work that gives them confidence, life skills and that sense of community, this in itself will help them to overcome loneliness and really have that sense of belonging. Okay. I, 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 sorry, I have a question there quickly. Um, so I understand we, we, we spoke about how the youth um, should be approaching such initiatives and um, try getting help. Um, I think one issue that uh, all of us have faced at some point as youngsters is that we don't feel heard at home as well and we, we feel mm-hmm. distant from our parents. So what is mm-hmm. that, that, that that parents can do to help their young children get out of these problems? Um, so from my perspective, it would be... Um, doing more to promote um, youth services and youth workers and community services to parents and um, because I think sometimes young people it's good for them to have that trusted adult that isn't a parent it isn't a teacher who they can speak to sort of like freely and openly without judgment um, in, a, in a kind of in a safe space so I think if parents are aware of them services um, and can also like support their young people to access them then that's brilliant um, I think also parents, um, uh, I think young people would say pa- if parents are able to um, try and understand um, more what it's like for a young person to be 
um, living in this generation, like post-COVID, after being in lockdown with the challenges of digital. So I think the more parents can do to educate themselves, support each other and their communities with that, I think that will only benefit young people. Uh, one last question. I, I think it's, uh, uh, I'm a GP and I think I, uh, I feel that it's very, very difficult to differentiate between the mm. signs of depression and just loneliness. Mm. And uh, mm. so how do we like draw a line and how can we, uh, you know, the youth that they can seek support for their mental health and uh, they can cope with the feelings of isolation? Yeah, so um, really great question. And we know that um, loneliness in itself isn't, you know, um, a, a specific mental health condition. But as I said before, it's when that becomes really intense over a long period of time that it can lead to um, like more severe like mental health struggles and challenges. Um, I think in terms of drawing the line and supporting young people with general feelings of mental health, encouraging young people to look up what support and activities and opportunities might be available in their local area. I think for professionals and support services to be going to where young people are at and thinking about um, how they can engage with them and um, in including them and then in the design of opportunities and activities so that it will engage with them. <coughs> We know that half of young people believe better or increased access to youth work would benefit their mental health. So I think more support services like that is only going to be um, more beneficial um, and more investment in youth work obviously is going to um, enable that to happen. Um, in terms of um, just quickly finally on your point around drawing the line, I think it's being able to have those cross-sector conversations like what we're having now so that we can work together across the different agencies mm -hmm. that will support young people mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. really spot where is it a young person who's isolated and it's only been like that for a short amount of time and let's get them into these activities or is it something that's long-term that needs like really targeted intervention so it's about that join up between organizations mm -hmm. um, and professionals yeah, Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, for for, for being with us. And and I'm sure that our listeners have uh, benefited from this greatly. Thank you very much, and have a lovely day. Thank you, thank you so much. much. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So, bye. So we were just speaking with um, Kaylee Wainwright, who is the director of youth sector uh, innovation at UK Youth, and also Molly Taylor, uh, who is a member of Belong Collective, which is a cross sector network, also at. UK youth and specifically aiming to tackle youth loneliness and uh, we, we we did get some great insight again into the topic um, how how youngsters um, can feel lonely and 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 how they can potentially seek out to such forums and and get help and without uh, further ado let let let's get straight to our next guest caller which is and please do forgive me if i mispronounce the name it's isabella branistianu if i'm wrong please forgive me uh chair of old alone a charity tackling loneliness among the elderly through diverse activity um isabella thank you very much for jo joining us and welcome to the drive time show uh, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to introduce our charity organization and by the way you pronounce my surname perfectly. Oh, that, 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 that's good to know. That, that <laughs> makes good. me a very okay. happy man. Thank you. So, yeah. uh, 
tell us about um, Old Alone UK. How how do you address loneliness in the elderly, um, and uh, the and, and how do you promote social engagement? Uh, yes, as um, the name suggests, Old Alone UK is a small charity um, supporting older people. We have been active for over many years and uh, supported thousands um, of people through our projects and activities. In what we do, we strive to reduce uh, social exclusion and its impact. Um, we support people from diverse group backgrounds, such as Latin America, the Spanish-speaking community, Portuguese, African, Afro-Caribbean, Indian, English, and um, other community backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are proud to be able to bring people together from such a variety of nationalities. Um, This multicultural element is um, a characteristic of our work. And although Old Alone UK focuses on older people, we understand the importance of having diversity in age as well. So we encourage uh, younger participants to come along in our activities and programs to create intergenerational relations. Mm -hmm. And this is essential to achieve um, healthy and age-friendly communities for everyone. Um, We get support from Haringey Council, community voluntary sector organizations, um, the National Lottery Community Fund, and digital inclusion programs. Uh, One of them uh, we run in partnership with um, London South Bank University. Um, To refer to your question about how we address loneliness, I would like to tell you um, about some of our learning programs and services. We've uh, got a bespoke digital inclusion program for older people called Click and Connect for All. This program won the Engineering and Technology Best Diversity and Inclusion Impact Innovation Award in November 2020. And through this program, we help um, older people to access um, digital technology in a simple and uh, tailored manner to their learning needs. Um, To give you some examples of what they learn uh, is uh, how to use WhatsApp on smartphones to connect with family and friends, how to use learning platforms to be able to access lessons online, such as Zoom. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have a range of programs to help promote socializing and creating a community spirit. We offer guitar lessons, which keep all the adults engaged, motivated by learning how to play an instrument um, while moving their fingers to avoid stiffness. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we have dance lessons, uh, which I can tell uh, are well attended, and the group learns beautiful choreographies, uh, meditation, exercises, routines tailored for all the adults, in great demand. Uh, we also have a community hub days on the last Saturday of each month, where mm. we celebrate everyone's birthday of that month. Uh, we enjoy delicious food cooked by our chefs, and we socialize together as a group. Absolutely. That, that, that is truly um, interesting, and really uh, a lot of uh, initiatives that, that you are um, doing in order yes. to help these people. So uh, if you could tell me quickly, what are some of the common signs and symptoms of loneliness in the um, elderly groups? Yes, uh, we have an um, increasingly elderly population. And what uh, we can see is that loneliness and isolation are also on the rise too. Uh, we also know that older people who are socially isolated and lonely are at a higher risk of suffering um, a variety of physical and mental conditions, 
such as uh, high blood pressure, heart disease, depression, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so it's important to spot early signs and symptoms of loneliness uh, in older people. For example, uh, some of them include but are not limited to a lack of appetite, unusual social withdrawal like refusing to take calls or attending uh, activities, difficulty communicating uh, and concentrating, uh, ongoing sadness, anxiety, lack of motivation, and uh, sometimes behavioral changes, uh, for example, increased spending habits compensate for the loss of social uh, contact. And all these uh, directly impact on the health and well-being of people in this group. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, how do you suggest we can support the elderly people who feel isolated due to the loss of maybe friends and family? Um, how, how is it that, that, that we as a society can help? Uh, I think being connected is the key. Older people are at a much greater risk of experiencing social isolation. Um, loss of friends and family can lead to feelings of emptiness, depression. Uh, so a solid community-based network is vital to help combat um, loneliness and isolation. Uh, therefore, forming strong partnerships between NHS national health service, um, social service uh, agencies and community and voluntary sector uh, is vital to help uh, combat combat uh, loneliness. Right. And lastly, um, before um, we thank you, um, is my question I have for you is, can you tell us about the, 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 the positive outcomes you have witnessed from uh, implementing such companionship programs and activities for older people? Um, we notice that um, older people who attend our programs become more independent um, in using digital technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you a few examples, they can access social media networks like Facebook, Instagram to socialize with family and friends, uh, or they can buy goods on eBay. And uh, when it comes to socializing and skills sharing, we also notice um, older people improving their confidence well-being, mental health, uh, creating new friendships. And um, overall, the range of programs and activities we provide um, have supported their social mobility, knowledge growth and independence, therefore uh, positively impacted uh, on their quality of life. Absolutely. Um, Isabella, it it, it was a pleasure um, speaking with you. And really, really inspiring the, the, the work that you're doing uh, to help out um, older people that are feeling lonely. Um, thank you very much for being with us and I wish you a lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. And before I uh, go, uh, I would like to mention that we wouldn't have done all this without our fantastic team of volunteers mm-hmm. um, coming from all backgrounds and walks of life. Um, and also Louisa Brands, uh, the founder and CEO of uh, Old Alone OK, mm-hmm. is at the heart of our organization. And we are very grateful to have her around us. Thank you. And uh, yes, uh, Really, uh, thank you to all your team uh, that are working behind the scenes and uh, really making this this whole thing happen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we're just speaking with uh, Isabella uh, Branistiano, who is the chair of Old Alone, charity tackling loneliness among the elderly through diverse activities. Just to, you know, just to give an idea of, you know, uh, obviously we have got a few minutes left and we'll be 
talking about the statistics, you know, how much loneliness is prevalent among the society. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the figures which we have, according to the ONS, younger Brits are reporting a high level of loneliness. Those aged between 16 to 29, so that's a very young group, mm-hmm. it's 9.7%, and they are over two times as likely to report feeling lonely often or always than those over 70. So over 70, the figure is 3.7%. Wow. And an average of 7.08% of people reported feeling lonely from November 2022 to February 2023. So we are uh, we are talking about this period when we are coming out of COVID. <coughs> yes. So these are the particular... So this equates to an estimated 3.7 million people. So is a huge number of people who are suffering from this loneliness. And uh, some of them, they will be able to communicate. The others, and (coughs) as, uh, you know, our guests have elaborated very, very clearly that you can be lonely when you are on your own. Maybe you have lost somebody, you are grieving, but you you may be in the middle of sitting in the middle of many, many people, Mm, and mm. you still feel lonely. You, You don't have somebody you can open up with or talk your heart about mm, something mm, mm. and you f- you feel lonely. So uh, so it's, it's very, very essential. I think it's a very, very important topic and uh, it's a good thing that it has been brought up. And uh, we are likely to continue this into our second hour as well. Yes. <clears throat> and we'll be talking more about, uh, about loneliness in the second hour and uh, to one of our guests as well. So the researchers have found that loneliness may be a bigger risk factor for heart disease in diabetes, diabetic parents than a bad diet, smoking, lack of exercise or depression. Mm-hmm. So that also gives us uh, um, you know, an idea of how important it is yeah. that you know, you're comparing it with a bad diet, which is often said that it is uh, your illness is dependent on a bad diet, yes. on a lack yes. of exercise, smoking, um, or depression, which is which takes us to that the other side of the boundary, which is depression is a yeah. mental health condition. So, um, so this has a major impact because the immunity, the power to defend the body against the the infections, mm-hmm. is reduced when you are feeling lonely. Mm-hmm. So that is another factor that uh, the, your immunity, you know, and and it's a very common experience that. If you are feeling happy, you are less likely to become ill yes, of any yes. any illness, so basically. True, so true. And uh, if you are under the weather, if you are already, you know, feeling low, uh, although apparently it is not that some bug is coming to you because of your depression, yeah. but if you are lonely, you are more likely to pick up an infection than mm. if you are happy because your adrenaline is coming out mm. because mm. when you are happier and that protects you yes. because it gives you a stronger defense against the bacteria and that's how it helps. So I, I think it's, it's a very, very important topic that we uh, we have uh, brought up and uh, a lot of people who are who don't speak about it, maybe they are suffering, they should come out, they should speak to someone. And uh, I think it's a great help if you can just ask, come out, speak out and ask people, you know, uh, you know, are you feeling lonely? Mm. How can I help? Mm-hmm. And and simple things, they, they will make a huge difference. Absolutely. And that really brings us to the end of the hour. We'll be back 
uh, with the same topic um, after the news break. So please um, stay with us. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome back um, to the second hour at uh, the Drive Time Show here at the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Salman, and Dr. Tariq Bajwa. We have been discussing the topic of loneliness and how this is becoming a serious health concern in recent history. Um, we have been speaking to, to many of our guests and have been getting great insight into this topic. We will continue to talk about this for a little further. A, a question that we asked to our um, regular listeners on our socials was a statement that over 70s, so people that are over the age of 70, feel more lonely than those under 30. And you could choose between true or false. Um, most of the people that replied, uh, above 60% said that it is true that people um, that are over 70 feel more lonely. But in actuality, um, it is the other way around, that uh, those under 30 are more likely to feel lonely <clears throat> As we were mentioning earlier, a, a study in this regard that it is actually 9.7% of those between the age of 16 and 29 um, that report feeling lonely, whereas it's only 3.7% out of those that are above the age of 70. So yes, um, uh, really something to, to, to worry about for us as society and uh, we have been trying to raise awareness today and we have been trying to explain how we could potentially help those that are around us and how and how those that are potentially um, struggling with, 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 with this problem, with, with loneliness uh, they can seek out and they can speak with people around them and we also mentioned the, the power of, of prayer in, in this regard, that it is Allah the Almighty, as it is an Islamic belief, uh, belief that Allah is always around us and He's always willing to listen and He's always willing to answer our prayers. So this is somewhere we, we can always go and really let out all the emotions we have and all the problems we have. Now, uh, let us move on to our last guest caller for, for this topic we have for you, uh, which is um, James Lewis, who is the founder and CEO of Action for Elders. Um, James, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Drive Time Show. My pleasure. Good afternoon, both. How are you? I'm very well. How are you yourself? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm feeling much better now that... The we got blue sky and the sun is shining. I have to say. Oh yes, yes, and and, and I must say when I hear your voice and and it's so cheered up, it makes me feel much 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 better already. Um, so James, tell us uh, about Action for Elders. What was the idea behind it? Well, the idea behind it really was that, um, as you know, we have uh, for the first time in our history, um, living history, we have more older people. Uh, over the age of 65 than we have 
um, being born mm-hmm. um, under five. So um, that is a great problem for society, which needs to be looked at. And secondly, we also have uh, greater problems in terms of the fact that uh, people at the age of 63, excuse me, my voice is going, <coughs> it always happens on the radio, doesn't it? Oh, it does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have, um, uh, the age of 63 is where most people actually have a healthy life. And then after that, um, <clears throat> it's usually a chronic condition which is affected. But longevity now with people is around about, um, on average, depending whether you're male or female, 85 to 87. Mm-hmm. So there's a long time between people living a healthy uh, age to where they they actually um, don't d- die. So we needed to come up with, with a, a couple of schemes which ensured that as much as we can, we can improve the health and well-being of older people during that, that those 20 or 30 years. And we undertook some, res- some research together with the World Health Organization. And we found that there were these areas across the world, they were called blue zones. I don't know whether you're aware of them. But the, in these areas of blue zones, that, that people have um, a healthier lifestyle, they live longer, and there are reasons for that, and it's not rocket science, and those reasons are they take some exercise every day, mm-hmm. or most days. they have a good diet, mm-hmm. and they have good social connections. Mm-hmm. And But underpinning all of that is that um, there is a attitude of mind, and this is what fascinated us, an attitude of mind or resilience to whatever challenges they face. And so we are, a, we are very much behind the, the fact that if you are more positive about aging, then you will, on average, and there's research coming out from Yale University in, in America to prove this, that you will, on average, live seven years longer because of your positive attitude aging. And so that is what we're running through our, our programs and um, we, 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 we do it on three different ways. We improve people's physical mobility, we improve uh, people's mental health, and obviously their uh, social connections. And that is extraordinarily important when it comes actually um, down to looking at loneliness. I mean, loneliness, you know, I have to say, is, is not a new problem or not a new challenge. I mean, going back to the 13th century, I'm, I presume you're aware of the Persian poet, Hadiz. Mm. Um, and then he said, and I quote, I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Mm. And, and I think that that is where we, Action for Elders, slightly differ from other people or other organizations, where we are trying to, to, to build in, in older adults this belief that, okay, so we've got ageism in society, that's looked at negatively. We've got this greater aging population, and if we don't look at our attitude to aging, and that, that's both structural aging and the individual, then we're going to have a massive problem and challenge ahead of us as society um, you know, increases with, with this uh, situation of an older population. So, when you're looking at loneliness, loneliness and social isolation are two entirely different things. Mm-hmm. And loneliness is a very negative personal emotion. And, I mean, this was brought home to me when I visited a care home many years ago. 
and the manager of that care home was taking me around and introducing me to people and there were people in, in groups um, talking and uh, you know getting on with with their day in the care home and he said to me he said James you know if you can help with with, with this with this problem you see these people here in the groups and I said yes I do and on the surface, they seem to be okay, don't they? Well, I said they seem to be, yeah, enjoying the, the, the environment that they're in. Well, he said, this is the problem. They may be doing that now, but once they go back into their room, they become depressed and they become lonely again. Is there anything you can do to to interact with them, to stop them getting lonely once they're taken out of a group situation? And that is something that uh, has been with me for many years and we've developed this kind of program which is based on something called the census framework i don't know whether uh, any of you are um, familiar with the census framework mm -hmm. but you have to have six senses or it's a it's a piece of research which is bit on relationship centered care and you have to have six senses in place which then create an environment on how you interact with older people and I won't bore you with telling you what the senses are, but there are three uh, main um, senses which cover loneliness. And that is you create a sense of achievement, you create a sense of purpose, and you create a sense of meaning. Now, that is key to how we tackle loneliness, particularly for older people. Loneliness in older people is largely brought about because... Uh, somebody's lost a partner or a loved one, they have an illness or a disability. So they, they, they are, plus the fact that they are at a certain age, what they don't, most of them think, is that there's no purpose going forward. What have I achieved in life? And they will question that, as we all do at certain times. So it's important to kind of restill that in these individuals and get them to have a sense of meaning uh, about where they are in life and recognize that um, uh, aging is just another stage of life with its own challenges, just as when we were young, when we were adults, these are stages of life with, with all of their own challenges. And there's a lot of research that goes on in regards to the importance of, of having meaning in your life and how that affects the mental situation in, in, in regards to loneliness in particular, which, by the way, I mean, there are, you know, figures out there for older people over 50. If we don't tackle loneliness now, mm -hmm. then by 26, there'll be 2 million people over 50 who will feel, often feel lonely. Yeah. And so this is the sort of kind of um, epidemic that we are, we are facing as a society. Um, so... And there are particular ways that we will, we will be focusing and, and doing this. It, we will be utilizing and training volunteers. We call them actioneers. And we, we will be um, actually bringing them to be trained in creating a sense of purpose and meaning for, for older people and doing it on a one-to-one -one basis. Because as I said earlier, loneliness is a negative personal emotion. And so you can bring people together uh, in a group, and I know you... You guys were talking about that earlier, mm -hmm. just for the news. That is, you know, you can bring people together in the group, but they can still be lonely. And mm -hmm. that is absolutely 100% right. So um, one, one, one thing I'm, I want to ask you uh, before we 
um, end this topic here for today. Um, what can we as as fellow human beings or as society do? Um, how how can we locate such people that potentially be in the need of help? And how can we help out? Well, I think, you know, one of the things about be, being lonely is, is that these people are predominantly hard to reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, that, you know, if you're connecting in the community, I mean, it's a community that will actually tell you that somebody is is lonely. I mean, we, when we started our groups, first of all, we had a very kind of formal referral system where we would only take re- referrals from GP practices, for example, or health professionals. Um, uh, and then the people themselves that were attending our groups uh, were telling us, look, I know this person and that person, and they would benefit from this. But do you mind if I make a self-referral? So I think, and, and we, you know, I, and th- these people were lonely or depressed or socially isolated in some ways. And, and we said, no, we'll change our system so that we can self-refer. So I think the community is incredibly important mm-hmm. to identify people that are lonely. And then the other thing is this, is that, you, you know, when you're bringing people together in groups, you have to be skilled to recognize those that are still lonely within that group. And they will give you kind of signs um, in what they say and uh, sometimes in what they do, but certainly in what they say. And then, you know, it's up to to us to work with them on an individual one-to-one basis. And one of the most important skills is to listen. Mm -hmm. And then after listening, it's then to to, uh, allow these people to really think that they, they are important, They've achieved something. They can still uh, live a life of purpose, and they can still live a life of meaning, whatever that means. Because, again, as individuals, as human beings throughout the world, we're all born alone, and mm-hmm. we all die alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that that you know that is something that if we come to terms with ourselves and come to terms with who we are and are comfortable with who we are and what we can still do and achieve, that is going to be the way to reduce loneliness. Absolutely. Um, James, it, it was really a pleasure speaking with you and we hope to have you on um, again at, at some time. But for now, thank you very much and have a lovely day ahead. Thank you both and uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you down the road. Bye-bye. So we were just speaking with our last guest caller for today, James Lewis, um, founder and CEO of Action for Elders. Again, gave us great, great insight on, on how to tackle these issues, the the, the um, campaigns that are being run, uh, the initiatives that, that are being taken to help. So if our listeners, um, amongst our listeners, there is someone that is in need of help, please do reach out um, to to the people around you, to, to such campaigns, to, to, to such foundations. And there is help out there. You don't have to go through this uh, on your own. Now, Regarding social isolation, we find uh, the guideline of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which he left for his ummah. So it is narrated by Ibn Umar that the Prophet, uh, وسلم, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, prohibited isolation and that a man spends the night alone or travels alone. So this is sort of the, the, the common um, guideline we have when it comes to uh, an Islamic point of view. So the importance of 
um, strong social connections cannot be overstated, obviously. Uh, being part of a supportive uh, network of friends, family and community fosters um, a sense of belonging, promo- uh, promoting overall happiness and a life of, of um, satisfaction, really. Conversely, the uh, detrimental effects of loneliness should not be underestimated either. And I, and I hope that we did um, shed enough light uh, on on this aspect. So by prioritizing meaningful connections, we can safeguard our well-being and create a sense of um, interconnectedness that enriches our lives with love, good health and joy. So that was uh, it for our first topic today. We will now take a short uh, break and we'll be back with you with our second topic for today. Please stay with us. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbours. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasised consideration towards one neighbours so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbour would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbour might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbour should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favourite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbour. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbour is not secure against injury and ill-treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbour. He asked people not to object to their neighbours driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbour. He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. 
yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome back. Um, as we are talking about the second topic for today, which is caliphate. So we will be speaking a little about how the caliph. Uh, is chosen, who the rightfully guided caliph actually is, the concept of caliphate. And also, um, we will speak a little about the first caliph of the Amriya Muslim community, which is Hakim Molana Nuruddin. You're joined by myself, Salman, and uh, Dr. Tariq Bajwa, and we will be with you, for, God willing, until 6pm. And as always, our number to call is 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. Or you can also um, speak with us over our socials at Voice of Islam UK. Um, thank you, uh, Sulman. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, our topic today for this hour is the uh, caliphate, which is called Khilafat or Khilafa in Arabic. Uh, and and uh, caliphate or Khilafat is a spiritual institution that succeeds prophethood. It provides unity, progress, righteousness, and security to the followers of a prophet. The caliph or Khalifa is a prophet's spiritual heir, his vicegerent and subordinate. He derives his authority from his master prophet and as such becomes the central authority for his followers. Uh, in the Holy Quran, which is the book for the Muslims, which is a guide as well as which gives us all the principles and how to live our life along with the commandments and the the basic teachings of Islam. The Holy Quran says, and it's been promised of the caliphate, um, chapter 24, verse 56, it says, Allah has promised to those among you who believe and do good works that he will surely make them successors in the earth as he made successors from among those who were before them. So this, this verse alludes to the fact that successors will be made <clears throat> in the earth just as successors were made by God from among people who were before them, which includes the concept of the establishment of Khilafat after the advent of previous prophets. Now if we look at the Khilafat after the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The death of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was followed by the spiritual institution of Khilafat. And the first successor of Khalifa 
after the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq, may Allah be pleased with him, a companion of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So on the death of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, Hazrat Umar Farooq uh, succeeded as the Khalifa, may Allah be pleased with him as well. Um, so he became the Khalifa of the Prophet. Then Hazrat Usman Ghani was the third caliph, the, the third caliph, and the fourth caliph was Hazrat Ali ibn Abi Talib. May Allah be pleased with all of them. So this also tells us that there can only be one Khalifa at one time, and all of these Khulafa. Khulafa is a pro is a plural of Khalifa. Khalifa is singular. Um, so all of these calif- caliphs were known as the rightly guided khulafa, which is the Arabic uh, rendering is khulafai rashidin. That means the, the caliphs who were the righteous caliphs. So in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which is, uh, you know, the which was started by Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmad, on whom be peace, he was the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So when he passed away, Khilafat was established once again. And this is known as the Khilafat of the Ahmadiyyat or khilafat Ahmadiyya. That's the Arabic version. So the Khalifa of the Promised Messiah, on whom be peace, is known as Khalifatul Masih, which means Khalifa of the Messiah. The first Khalifa of the Promised Messiah, on whom be peace, was Hazrat Hakim Walwi Nuruddin, may Allah be pleased with him, at uh, whose demise Hazrat Mirza Bishiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, he became the Khalifa. And the third Khalifa was Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him, and the fourth successor was Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. So the fifth successor and the and the present Khalifa of the Ahmadi Muslim community is Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad. May Allah strengthen his hands. So these, this is, uh, these are the five names of the successor of the promised Messiah, uh, on whom be peace, uh, who came as the Messiah in accordance with the prophecy of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Now, the questions which many people have in their minds is how a Khalifa is appointed. And uh, according to the Islamic teachings, the office of Khilafat can, under no circumstances, be inherited from one's father or relative. So you can't be an heir to a, to a caliphate. So it is a holy trust given only to a pious follower of a prophet, whilst people are involved in the process of selecting the Khalifa, Muslims firmly believe that it is Allah who appoints the Khalifa. According to Islam, people who are entrusted with selecting the next Khalifa are guided by Allah during the selection process. The end result is that the most able and righteous person is selected for the position of Khalifa. So although apparently is the people who are electing hmm. one person, but it is in the minds of those people, it's Allah who is guiding them at whom to choose the Khalifa. And uh, many a times it has been seen that the people who had 
different person in their minds to be to to vote for at the time of the election they have changed their mind and it allah who has uh, guided them and then uh, khalifa is chosen i think dr uh, dr pajwa a, a question that could be asked over here yeah is that in in recent history for example we have seen a few caliphates so we can't just speak about the ahmadiyya caliphate we have some others as well we yeah. we have had the caliphate of the isis as well yeah. now they could have a similar claim that though it was voted from amongst common human beings it was a rightly guided khilafat so how would you say we differentiate between the two so that's that's an important question and i i think the the, the basic thing is that we have to as i mentioned earlier that we believe in the promised messiah hazrat mirza ghulam ahmad of qadian who claimed to be the same imam mahdi mm-hmm. who was prophesized or he was also called the promised messiah on whom be peace who was prophesized by the holy prophet of islam prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him mm-hmm. and it is him we have to turn to in order to get the guidance whether one is a true representative of the holy prophet may peace be upon him or not mm-hmm. so we have to follow the guidance he has given we he has given the signs that these are the signs which you can see in that person who will be the representative of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him mm-hmm. because it is very very important to recognize him because it is the holy quran which says that in the latter days the holy prophet of islam himself is is to come again yeah yeah and if he is the one who is coming in person again then we have to you know through him we are going to get the guidance mm-hmm. so if we are not able to recognize him then it will be will be in the darkness we yes. can't see our way <coughs> and and that's why it's very very important to recognize him so the first and foremost is that we see the character of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him absolutely. the same character in him as well mm, mm. because he will be passionate to give the message of islam <coughs> to the world yeah and the second thing which is important is that everybody will turn against him just mm-hmm. like people turned against at the time of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him people turned against him yeah and there was hardly any very few people who were willing to accept him mm. in the beginning and they all was tell, telling him that he was a liar and he was claiming for you know these are the false claims mm. so the same thing is happening with the the, the promised messiah on whom be peace and a recent example you see is that the the ahmadiyya muslim community has been isolated in particularly in pakistan they have been isolated by declaring them to be non muslim yes. all the other other sects of islam mm-hmm. they although they have individually claimed the others to be the non believers disbelievers but jointly mm. all of them they have gathered and they have declared ahmadiyya muslim community to be non muslim so they they themselves have separated the ahmadiyya muslim community yes now according to the prophecy of the the promised messiah hazrat mirza ghulam and the qadian on whom be peace he said that the holy prophet may peace be upon him he said that there will be 73 sects in mm-hmm. my ummah mm-hmm. 
and one of them will be the one which will be saved and the others will go to the hell they will uh, see the hellfire mm. mm. so it cannot be that the the majority will be the one who is right yes. but it is the one who has been isolated will be the right one mm. Mm. so today if we compare with the other you know those claimants of the khalifa you don't see anything like that <coughs> yeah. in them yeah and that's how it is it is very very clear and becomes evident and then you you come closer and then you look at look at the similarities between the caliphate mm-hmm. which wo- which followed the holy prophet of islam prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him and then you compare it with the caliphate which was um, you know which was uh, initiated after the demise of the promised messiah islam mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we see so many similarities yes and and that also shows you that this is the one which is the <coughs> continuation of the righted rightly guided caliphate as you know somebody said you know i remember somebody saying that uh, when the current khalifa who was elected as a fifth caliph mm-hmm. so the people were very passionate to see him to you know and uh, they showed their love and their passion and somebody uh, commented somebody asked you know why why the people are so passionate to see him and he said that look we have waited hundreds of years to see the fifth rightious khalifa mm-hmm. absolutely and that yes. is why you know yes. people are so passionate mm. to see him because you know after the fourth caliph you know the, the, there was uh, the caliphate was not there the right not the rightly guided one mm. and so so again now we have the fifth khalifa who is among the rightly guided Khalifa Absolutely. Caliphate. I mean you're right and there there is obviously not just one way of of looking at this. Yeah, right? Absolutely. So everyone has their sort sort of their, their own parameter on yeah. on on which they they're going to try and measure the 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 truthfulness yeah. of of a certain institution. And by the grace of Allah you can bring any parameter that that, that you want to follow. it will always prove that this khilafat is the rightly guided one so you um, as you were beautifully mentioning the the historic reference there right um i i usually ask people that how do you explain the the continuation and the continuous victories of khilafat over a period of nearly 115 years right yeah absolutely so there there had to be a stop somewhere yeah If we look at the Khilafat of ISIS, which which only lasted a few days, really, right? How come that Khilafat came and it didn't just live for a few years? Rather, it out it outlived uh, <clears throat> the amount of years that were after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So there has to be some sort of divinely guided uh, Khilafat that that can go this far. and there is unf- uh, um, the, i mean fortunately alhamdulillah there is no other institution there hasn't been any other claimant of khilafat or nabuwat uh, of of prophethood that has has lasted this long so that within itself is such a i mean uh, historic proof really and then obviously as you were uh, mentioning the the similarities between the message that's been given and especially when it comes to the message of peace when it comes to promoting the right kind of islam where when it comes to promoting the the peaceful picture of islam because if you compare it to isis isis came in and really ruined the world for all muslims based on a few muslims i mean those were a, a bunch of men maybe a hundreds a, a few hundreds 
I think that also in itself it gives us the necessity hmm. why it was necessary for um, uh, for a reformer in in the latter days hmm. w- the need for him because there was so much of the misinterpretation of the holy quran that we needed somebody who was to be called hakam and adl that was the one who would decide yes. what is right and uh, who would differentiate between uh, right and wrong yes and and that is why that is one <coughs> character of the imam mahdi of the of the promised messiah that he has been given that title that when he will come he will give the decision that this is right and this is wrong hmm. Hmm. so the false interpretations particularly has led muslims to giving a bad name to to islam hmm. and the media which picks it up very quickly and and it is a, promotes and exploits the false information which is given by looking at these people who have not interpreted the holy quran correctly hmm. and with the false ideas and false ideology yeah. they they have given actually uh, i remember that uh, reading somewhere uh, the promised messiah the holy founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community <coughs> may, on whom be peace he has written that the um, uh, the damage which has been done yes. to islam by the enemies is less than the damage which has been done by their own people the followers of islam mm. by misinterpreting it and then practicing it yes absolutely so you uh, you were explaining the the election of khilafat right yeah. and and you yeah. were telling us about how um it is chosen between us human beings but then we also believe that it is guided by Allah yeah, Almighty yeah how 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 it is uh, so if we look at the history you know at the time of the demise of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him a group of muslims they were known as ansar ansar the people who were living in Medina at the time of the migration of the holy prophet may peace be upon him they were called ansar ansar uh, literally means helpers and they all gathered in a hall near medina and this hall was known as saqifa banu saida hmm. and had chosen saad bin ubada as successor to the prophet and in they intended to establish him as a khalifa as he was uh, partisan to the ansar without consulting the muhajirin hmm. muhajirin were the people who had migrated from mecca um or from anywhere else to 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 medina uh, and uh, amongst whom were very uh, close some of the very close companions of the holy prophet may peace be upon him as well so as soon as hazrat abu bakr uh, and hazrat umar heard of this they uh, went there uh, with some other others as well uh, to that uh, hall of banu saida where they had intended to establish Saad bin Ubadah as khalifa so hazrat abu bakr uh, may allah be pleased with him he proceeded extempore explaining that although they that means the ansar were deserving and meritorious in their services to islam the arabs would not they would only accept the authority of those who were from the tribe of the prophet mm-hmm. um on whom be peace uh, that, that means the crash so hazrat abu bakr um may allah be pleased with him they then held out umar's hand and that of abu bada bin abdullah and stated that they should accept either of the two as a khalifa mm-hmm. so at this the ansar retorted that they they should be one ruler from us and one from you 
and then you know people started shouting their voices came of disagreement and uh, there was a fear of dissension and hazrat umar you know he took a wise step he immediately told abu bakr may allah be pleased with him to hold out his hand and he pledged his allegiance to him and on seeing this the emigrants followed and so did the ansar so this was the first time when the the khilafat was established and the oppressed this was the precedent that there can only be one khalifa at one time and the office of khilafat cannot be shared or delegated so then obviously <clears throat> more recently right yeah. at the time of the demise of the persian messiah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as we are saying that, that there are so many similarities so obviously after this prophethood they had to uh, a, a a khilafat had to follow as well right <clears throat> So his closest and most uh, revered companion um which was Hazrat Khalifatul Masih al-Awwal Hakim Maulana Nuruddin he was chosen um to be the first caliph um and after he passed away in 1914 the second caliph Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad was elected who established certain guidelines for the appointment for the new khalifa in which it was stated that the election of the khalifa is to be assigned to an uh, electoral college the amdia um, electoral college was established by the second caliph so this is how alhamdulillah the jamaat ahmadiyya again which shows us another sign of the rightly guided khilafat that they have laid out foundations and rules and a structure for okay. everything so that there are no confusions or there are no disputes afterwards see the thing is that khalifa does not take this office that uh, because he desires to take that mm, office mm. it is always forced upon him yes and yes. he is the most reluctant person to take that office absolutely and um, again i remember once hazrat khalifatul masih the current hazrat khalifatul masih the fifth saying that uh, uh, you know those who think that uh, that he wants khilafat must be mad mm-hmm. because it is a job of such responsibility yes, yes. that nobody would even think of you know taking that responsibility and when has the khalifatul masih uh, the the first his name was was put forward to be the khalifa yes. after the demise of the the promised messiah on whom be peace you know he he himself said that you know i don't consider to be uh, deserving this uh, position mm-hmm. i would i suggest and he named a few members even he he named the wife of the promised messiah islam as mm, well mm. that you can choose choose her or uh, hazrat uh, khalifatul masih the second his name mirza mahmud ahmed who was very young at that time he said that uh, and also uh, <coughs> the father in law of the promised messiah yes. on whom be peace and a few a few other names as well and he mm. said that you can choose choose those people who can take this responsibility mm. and i will be the first person to take the oath of allegiance at mm. their hands yes. and uh, but then once uh, you know people uh, all the people they were agreed that they wanted him to be the khalifa yes. Yes. he said that uh, okay and he said um, he said uh, prayers two rakats of prayers at that time after performing his ablution and then he led the pray the funeral prayers of the promised messiah yes. uh, uh, on whom be peace at the time and then uh, obviously once he was established he was the khalifa then he was the one who said that this is um this is such a garment which once you have worn 
you can't take it off mm-hmm. because later on they, when there were some problems or some some people had an issue with the with khalifa being the the supreme head or the supreme authority mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, over all the other associations or organizations yes or the other institutions he he said that um, once this is this is one this is for for life Mm. you know and uh, a khalifa is for life and he cannot be replaced by anybody else yes. during his lifetime yes absolutely and i mean this is obviously once uh, the first caliph was elected but w- when we look at his life before this election during the lifetime of the promised messiah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and also uh, in, in in his personal life he was a very very successful man not just in spiritual sense but also in worldly sense right yeah he he had he you know he's uh, yeah it's an amazing life he had because if you look at his from his childhood mm. the family in which he was born you know they they were the ones they were famous for um, you know memorizing the holy quran yes um and and <coughs> up to 10 generations they had continued everyone had uh, memorized the holy quran to you know and uh, and this was coming in continuation so all his siblings they were also they had memorized uh, the holy quran mm. as a whole and so and uh, he has mentioned and he has written uh, actually narrated his story as well in which he writes that even in the womb of his mother he he remembers the listening to the holy quran yeah. because mm-hmm. his mother used to not only recite the holy quran but she used to teach many children mm. of uh, you know of the area who used to come to her and she was the one uh, who used to teach them and he himself also learned the holy quran from <coughs> from her so the environment in which he took you know he opened his eyes this was that atmosphere where it was mentioned the holy quran mm. and that is why i think he had he developed gradually he, he understood the holy quran he read the holy quran he studied the holy quran and he developed such a great love of the holy quran mm. that when he became khalifa when he was appointed or elected as a khalifa um the opponents you know the, their comments were that you don't need to worry Yeah. now because all he does is that uh, he will uh, he will do a dars he will um, uh, explain the holy quran he gives yeah. the interpretation of the holy quran yeah. and uh, he knows nothing else <laughs> <laughs> so so that also indicates his great uh, you know uh, relationship with the holy quran mm-hmm. and and once he mentioned that you know if 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 i do if i die and go in front of my god and he asked me what is your desire mm. uh, what my desire would be i would say that you know please send me back so that i can read the holy quran mm. and i can teach it to people and i can interpret interpret it such mm. was his great love for the, for the, for the holy quran isn't that it's so amazing. amazing it's so amazing so he was obviously a very revered um uh, medical practitioner yeah he was a physician as well right? definitely yeah so and and um he he wasn't just any local physician I mean, he, he he was well regarded in this regard uh and uh, he was also very well rewarded 
for um, his 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 profession. Yeah, he became a royal physician because he was a royal physician to yeah. to the Maharaja, yes. the, the king of the Kashmir at the time, yes. and for for many many years. Yes. And uh, he was the one who was, and uh, and he had such a reputation. And an, another interesting thing was that he would never charge fees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if anybody would come, yeah. he would treat him even from his own pocket. He would give the medicine and never ask for, for any fees. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet people would, you know, people will give him as a gift something. Yes. And that's how he, you know, he continued. But he had such a great trust in God Almighty yes. that, uh, you know, he continued to, to do this, even if sometimes he had to take... Uh, you know, to to borrow some money to help somebody, he would not hesitate to do that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so, such great and amazing character, and and that really shows us um, the immense, uh, divinely guided, um, that, that 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 power that that, that there was. Uh, behind the caliphs of the Ahmadiyya community. And that obviously didn't just stop with the first caliph. Also the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya community was someone who lived a great, great life, who uh, initiated many great schemes, who ran great campaigns. And he really saw maybe a half a century, maybe a century or many centuries ahead really of his time. His initiatives were, were of such caliber so the second caliph, when he was elected, uh, he was only 25 years old. So he was a very young man. Um, but so that was obviously something of of uh, a, a joy for the opponents of the Ahmadiyya community because they thought now that a strong character has left the Jamaat. A young 25-year-old boy has taken over. And uh, now it is that the Jamaat will fall, that the community, the Ahmadiyya community will fall. But by the grace of Allah the Almighty, this was not the case. Rather, this young man of 25 years old, um, he became Khalifa. He became the Caliph. And uh, he was the Caliph of the community for another um, 52 odd years, in which the community spread across the globe, really, from the, the most rural places of India all the way to the most rural places of, of Africa and Europe and, and the Americas. So, <clears throat> a great visionary, and his his work, whether it was the the, the speeches he did, uh, delivered, whether it, it was the structure that he built for the community. So if we look at the uh, auxiliary organizations within the community, there is the uh, Ansarullah, the elderly association, there, there's the Lajna, which is the ladies' um, um, association of the Jamaat, or the Khudam, which are the uh, <coughs> uh, youth association. Um, he established all those, and then... Uh, a great structure became um, visible, which then led the community uh, and has been leading since and will, uh, God willing, be leading this community for many, many years to come. So such great was his character and, and the vision he had. He gave many great lectures. He, he toured around the world. Um, he came to London. Um, he, he went to other countries of the world just to preach the message of the Amdiya community and just to um, help the people understand the, the truthfulness of Islam and the truthfulness of the Promised Messiah, um, we, we don't have really time to, to, to speak 
uh, about all of our caliphs. Uh, we will listen to a short uh, clip about the third caliph uh, of, of the community in a short while. And that will also take us to the end of today's show. But I would like to thank uh, all of our listeners for being with us. Also, our producer, Sayyidah Tahdiya Hassan, who uh, helped us with her, uh, for with producing this show. And also all the team uh, from behind the scenes. Thank you very much to, to our listeners as well. And uh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. A father and son were once travelling on a boat with a few friends. The son exclaimed, How nice would it be had we now had some fish? His father replied that it is very possible that our God sends us a fish from this very river. In hearing this, a friend said that the boy is too young to understand such matters. But without hesitation, the father answered that our God is all-powerful, and if he so willed, would send us a fish this very instant. Lo and behold, before he had even finished his sentence, a big wave swept up a large fish onto the deck of the boat. In many ways, this prodigious child was the fulfillment of the Holy Prophet Wasallam's prophecy regarding the promised Messiah that he would marry and have offspring. His name was Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmed. Khuda ka ye ehsan hai hum pe bhari ke jisne hai apni ye nemat utari He was born on the 16th of November 1909 in Qadian At the tender age of 13 he had completed the memorization of the Holy Quran and by the age of 20 he was among the top students to achieve the Mulvi Fadhil degree he was sent to England on the 6th of September 1934, where having studied in Oxford University, completed his BA and MA in Philosophy and Economics. During his time as a student in England, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmed started a monthly magazine entitled Al-Islam, with the sole purpose of showing the Western world the true, beautiful teachings of Islam. He states, Many a time I would wonder why my father gave me permission and spent so much money for me to go and study in Oxford University. It was not that I come and learn something from them, but that I myself become worthy enough to one day come and teach them. This is why I observed and examined the way they live and behave. On the 8th of November 1965, after the sad demise of his father, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmed was elected the third Khalifa in Rabwa. 1970 marked the year when Hazur toured West Africa. Whilst there, he felt a dire need to help the poor people around him. He devised the Nusrat Jahan scheme to tackle the problems in Africa by building hospitals and schools for the locals. By the grace of Allah, the impact of this scheme was instant and by the end of the third caliphate, over 20 hospitals and more than 120 schools had been built. Later that year, Hazur went on to visit Switzerland, England, Germany and Spain, laying the foundations of mosques in several of these countries. The Basharat Mosque in Spain was the first to be built in the country for more than 700 years. Of the many schemes launched by the third Khalifa, one of the most notable ones is the Talim al-Qur'an scheme, launched in 1966 with the desire that there be no member of the Jamaat unable to recite the Holy Qur'an and understand its meanings. 
In the same year, Huzur started the Vakfi Arzi scheme, which required volunteers to serve the Jamaat for two to six weeks at their own expenditure. Huzur then opened the Vakfi Jadid office for the Atfal, encouraging them to instill the habit of sacrifice within themselves. A flame of opposition was kindled in 1974 against the community. The situation had become so grave that news of Ahmadis being arrested, injured and even martyred was arriving on a regular basis. But the enemies did not stop there. Mosques, libraries and mission houses were either seized or destroyed. Ahmadis all over the country were boycotted. For several months, Hazur spent his nights in prayer for the protection and well-being of his sincere followers. The eyes of the Christian world were gazed upon Ahmadiyyat in 1978, when Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmed delivered his speech about the breaking of the cross in London. Despite threats from different churches, Hazur was not to be averted from presenting to the world Islam's beautiful teachings. Every moment of Hazur's life was in accordance with the motto he chose for the Jamaat, love for all, hatred for none. Wherever he went on tour, his effort was always to bring man to love his fellow brother and to eradicate hatred completely. On the 9th of June, 1982, at the age of 73, this flag-bearer of peace, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmed, passed away and met with his Creator. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Amen.